I like to say that um, the most dangerous thing in the swamp is your own stupidity. Hey, y'all. I'm Tommy Tomlinson. And from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. It sounds more like a movie than real life. A Florida wildlife agent goes undercover to immerse himself in the swampy world of alligator poachers. People who illegally kill gators and steal their eggs to sell to the highest bidder. But the whole thing is true, and the story is told in a new book called Gator Country by my guest today, author Rebecca Renner. Renner first heard the story from one of her high school students and ended up traveling deep into the Florida swamps, a landscape she was already familiar with. Along the way, she learned about not just gators and gator poachers, but the natural beauty of the parts of Florida that are still relatively unspoiled. Dive in, but wear good boots. Here's our conversation. Rebecca Renner, you grew up in Florida in territory that's kind of similar to the parts of the country that you write about in the book. What was your relationship with nature like when you were growing up? Um, I love nature. I was so used to it that um, to hear someone say that they were afraid of the swamp or that they would never go down into a place like that, that would have been so strange to me. Um, There are even writers writing books that were adventure books going into the Florida wilderness at the time. And I was seven and and doing the same thing just, you know, to play in my backyard. Um, So I would have found that very silly. And then to grow up and realize that the the landscapes that were usual for me were extraordinary for other people um, was revolutionary. Um, I had to learn to see those places with new eyes. It sounded like um, from one of the scenes you have at the beginning that your dad sort of kind of let you roam around and that sort of thing. Was was that normal for where you grew up? I mean, oh, all all the kids who were my age were were doing that. Maybe not necessarily down in the swamp, but I was really lucky to grow up in a place that um, uh, it was an air park. So there was a, a taxiway, or there are lots of taxiways and runways because people could um, own airplanes there. We didn't, but other people did. And the cool thing about the taxiways is that they were almost never used. So it was like a bunch of streets that were vacant that the kids could play on. And en- encounters with gators were not uncommon for you, right? The first time that I, I ever saw an alligator in the wild, which is one of the, the first scenes of the book, is when I was seven years old. And this, I remember it as a very large alligator. Um, I, I thought it was... 13 feet it could have been 13 feet but it also could have been six feet because (laughs) I was seven and I remembered everything is gigantic there's a saying that in Florida it's fair to assume and safe to assume that if there's a body of water and you can't see the bottom there's an alligator in it so most Floridians are having encounters with alligators they just don't realize it this particular case that you end up writing about, you sort of discovered it in an interesting way. Could you talk about that a little bit? I, I was a high school teacher and my my students in many of my classes were um, 
pretty much adults. They were the the kids who were, um, it, you know, 17, 18, 19, who were sort of struggling, but really, like, they actually wanted to be there. Like, this was their last ditch effort to be able to graduate from high school. So we we bonded, especially because we they wanted to be there. They we would talk and they would tell me stories. And um, one of them happened to be telling a story about poachers when I walked by or happened to be telling a story about poaching himself um, when I walked by. And I was like, whoa, this sounds illegal. Interesting, but illegal. (laughs) And so he he was basically like, uh, so what if somebody who wasn't me um, was poaching palmetto berries? And that sort of that story got us started on him telling me other poacher stories, mostly that he had heard from other people. And uh, several months later, he that's when Operation Alligator Thief came to a close and they arrested people. And of course, nothing travels faster than than gossip in Florida. Somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who was arrested that got back to us and my student told me the story and we thought it was it sounded wild and impossible. He described the officer who ran it as a shapeshifter um, and who had be- become someone else and, and tricked everyone. And you you couldn't go out into the woods and, and know for sure that anybody there was real. So the shapeshifter, as you put it, at the center of all this book... Uh, a guy named Jeff, and I've already got to botch his name because even though you just told me a few minutes ago, could you kind of describe this guy to us and how he ended up in this place? Well, Jeff is, um, his name is Jeff Bavada. He had been a a wildlife officer. Um, he had been a, a fishery, fisheries technician with the Florida Fish and Wildlife uh, Conservation Commission. And then he had become a game warden. And so he had been the the guy out in the woods making sure people aren't poaching and that had been his whole career and by the time operation alligator thief comes around he is the the proverbial um grizzled old lawman about to retire then the agency comes to him with one last job and that's one of the reasons why i wanted to write this because i was like this sounds like something that is uh like a tv show or a movie already the he gets a call from the agency saying that they want him to go undercover, but they won't tell him what the job is. He has to agree fully before they'll give him any of this information, which to me is frightening. It's like you're signing your life away, just like, I trust you, boss. He eventually does that with um, having to convince his wife first, who is um, very gracious about that because uh, she lost that other half of her life too. So he went undercover. It's very interesting because they didn't divulge everything right away. His boss left him keys in his mailbox and an address. And so he had to drive out to this address in the middle of nowhere. And it was overgrown. And And he, I think he said it, he got there and he, he said to himself, like, God, this place is a dump. <laughs> this is a jungle. So he's like, what have I gotten myself into? And it's really funny that um, they did this key drop and all this because the guys involved clearly have a, a flair for the dramatic, which is also very fun to write. But so eventually his boss 
told him that you're going to be raising alligators here. You're going to make a, a working alligator farm out of this place and you're going to use it to catch people who are poaching live alligators and alligator eggs. What's involved for those folks who maybe have not seen one of these places in Florida or elsewhere? What is an alligator farm? I don't think there are two alligator farms that are exactly the same, which is one of the interesting things. They have regulations, like they have to be functional and they have to be safe for the animals and the people and sanitary. But beyond that, your imagination is your limit. Jeff had to tour other farms, um, not just looking for clues that people were poaching, but to figure out what they were supposed to look like and what they were supposed to do. And and there's so many that were uh, completely different from each other. Um, one of the best ones that he toured had um, these things called raceways, which were long pools that the the hatchlings could swim in and they'd have these openings that they could go through that would limit them by size. So if you had an alligator that was two feet long, he wouldn't be able to fit through certain holes and they would, they would sort of organize themselves by size. Um, And that's, you know, pretty high tech compared to what Jeff ended up doing is he graded them himself and um, kept them in kiddie pools, um, which was a sort of hijinks and Sue moment when he had to go by all of the kiddie pools in this little town in Florida. And not only did he have to start this alligator farm, they didn't give him a whole lot of money to do it with. He had to kind of make this thing an actual business venture, right? It had to be a, a, a working farm in pretty much every way, um, including he, they didn't really give him very much money at all. The only money that he had was money that he had made from um, the his sort of training wheels case that was a, a catching softshell turtle poachers. And that's a chapter in, in the story. Explain to folks who may not understand this, what makes an alligator worth poaching in the first place? So many people, especially in the South, might have encountered um, alligator meat, um, alligator tail bites. Maybe they've even tried them. But uh, that's actually a byproduct of alligator farming. The The real purpose that farmers raise these alligators for is um, uh, their hides, which they they take from the animal and they ship overseas, mostly to Italy, where they're made into luxury goods like handbags and shoes. How dangerous is this job? I like to say that um, the most dangerous thing in the swamp is your own stupidity. So it can be very safe if you're smart and you know what you're doing. And it can be very dangerous if you are not prepared and you have no idea what you're doing. And well, Jeff is very smart and he had dealt with alligators before, but he was not quite as prepared as everybody else was. Um, so he had a few hair-raising situations. Luckily, he he got out of them. He lived to tell the tale, but he had some close calls. And this is a job that can be very dangerous because these are animals that, while they don't kill very many people, they can. One of the things Jeff thought while this was going on is that, you know, statistically, only one person gets killed by an alligator per year and, like, it's sounding like this might be me. <laughs> yeah, and the, uh, the other part of it is, you know, I guess the danger of his particular 
role in this is that he's always worrying, you know, is he going to get found out and what's going to happen to him if that happens at all. A lot of it felt like, you know, you talked earlier about this kind of feeling like a movie. To me, that part of it felt like those old mob movies where somebody kind of gets in deep with a crime family or something and is always wondering what, you know, when somebody's going to figure out who they really are. Yeah, he was worried about that because uh, Jeff always wants to believe the the best in people, but he's in these scenarios where he's essentially trapped. And and you know, what if the 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 best isn't what's going to happen? Like, what if you know people don't listen to their consciences this one time? Like, and, and I think part of that comes from his ability to empathize with people. That he was probably thinking. If this was me, this would be the one time that my conscience might betray me. This is a hard decision you'd have to make if you realize this person has been lying to you the whole time. Um, and you're the one that's in danger from the law. That's something that's very important to the book is his sense of empathy. And I don't think that I, I would have been able to write it or get as good of interviews from him if he didn't have that. Rebecca Renner talks about how poachers are in some ways the least of Florida's environmental problems. We spend so much time thinking about and harping on and, you know, lighting our our torches and carrying our pitchforks for poaching when that is not the thing that is doing the most damage to our environment. That and more ahead on Southbound. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now, back to my conversation with Rebecca Renner seemed like to me that as this thing went along, he not only started to have empathy for some of the poachers, but he started to have empathy for the gators themselves. Like he was seeing what the effects of the poaching were and that sort of thing. And, and maybe wondering, you know, what effect this was having on the environment, I guess. Jeff definitely bonded with the alligators that were in his care. Um, And one of the things that I learned while I was researching this book is that um, we sort of uh, think of alligators as being these scaly alien monsters. We don't notice that they are capable of forming bonds with humans, for one. 
uh, at Gatorland, I, I saw so many alligators that behaved sort of like cats um, that they had bonded with their their trainer. Um, she had uh, just gone on a trip, a conservation trip and come back when she called to one of them. I it was just the the most ridiculous thing that I, I, I don't even believe it when I say it, except I saw it happen that um, she called a name and an alligator rose from the pool and looked at us and looked straight at her and was like, no, and sank back down and left. And it didn't come back and interact with her until much later. I'm like, that is something a cat would do. Um, and this alligator understood its name, knew who she was, had clearly bonded with her, and was offended that she had left for so long. That is very cat-like, yes. As you're telling this story of Jeff and this operation that's going on, you sort of weave in another story, which is about an old-time poacher uh, legend in Florida named Peg Brown. Can you sort of tell a little bit of the story of Peg Brown? So I, I, I first learned about Peg Brown from an editor at the Miami Herald who told me about this this person, told me to look up a, a magazine story that had come out in the 70s. After this fellow had his heyday, he was a, a, allegedly the, the most prolific alligator poacher to ever live. And stories about him abounded. They all took the same shape as Robin Hood stories. He was a, a trickster who was always pulling one over on the the law down there. He, it was always him versus the rangers, cat and mouse. And, and he'd always get away and always trick them um, using uh, his intelligence and humor and not violence. And so I, I found that really interesting and, and I thought it was very, that it was possibly representative of the, the culture down there. Um, so I I went and investigated because I wanted to know if, like, how real this person was, how real the stories were, or if it was just storytelling. And I, I got to know his family and got to know that he was a real guy and that a lot of the stories... Um, Luckily, he was accompanied by his son. So I got firsthand accounts of some of the things that that happened um, and also saw that they were corroborated by vague notes in the Rangers documentation that, that noted things that sounded zany and impossible. What are your thoughts on how poachers like Peg Brown may have differed from people who are doing poaching today? Is it just a matter of technology and that sort of thing or is there some sort of like cultural philosophical difference as well it seems to me that the poachers these days still tell stories the way that um they did before it's sort of the whole fish story hunting story genre of storytelling i feel like it, it seems less purposeful now back in peg's time it it, it was almost in protest to the way it, things were changing and, and the way that um, modern days and, and, and roads and technology was coming in. And now I guess it's here and we're dealing with it. And that's, that's almost less of a story. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Like the, I guess maybe in his day, there was a time or at least they can remember a time when there really weren't any rules. 
and then the rules came in and and he had to adapt to them whereas i guess maybe today's poachers the rules have been there since the beginning i also think that uh one of the interesting things of his his mythos that came around him is that like his hunting exploits were so spaced out that it, it even though they made it sound like he was poaching a lot of alligators it really wasn't a horribly like high amount um but the the guys who poached alligator eggs in the story poached more than he did in just one year you mentioned alligator eggs why are those valuable and and sort of how did that poaching scheme work alligators don't breed in captivity so these farmers can't you know just put two alligators together and and make more alligators they have to get the eggs from the wild but there are limits and so when people try to get around the limits that is where they start breaking the law one of the the things that they're doing is egg laundering which is basically cooking the books on the eggs and saying you know oh we only took 15 and then maybe you took 30 what i wondered at the end of all this is out Jeff felt about it and how you feel about it, I guess. This guy sacrificed a couple of years of his life to, you know, undercover, was away from his family. I guess in technical terms, he succeeded. What I wonder is whether he thought it was worth it. And now looking back on it, whether you think it was worth it. He definitely thought it was worth it. Uh, they brought down some big poachers. I was sort of on the fence, but uh, the more I've talked about it, actually, the more I've come to defend it. One of my big takeaways is that even though I don't like how hard the law came down on these guys, um, I don't want people to be sent to jail for conservation. You know, it just doesn't seem like it's in the same ethos as, as nature conservation. But that being said, the punishments these guys got, they dissuaded at least my student who told me about this sting from ever wanting to poach again because he he thought that the going back to the, like this guy's a shapeshifter idea he that that anybody in the woods could be you know fwc um he decided he's gonna stop poaching for good and he got a a real job above the law <laughs> and and i'm sure that he's just representative of sort of a larger group of people that were dissuaded from breaking the law because of this. That's what you really want. That's what FWC really wants is they want to prevent crime before it happens. They much rather prevent crime and educate to stop people from from breaking the law and hurting Florida's natural resources than punish it when people do. Part of what you talk about in the book is this kind of constant struggle that I think probably happens more in Florida than anywhere else in the country between, you know, the environment, the beautiful natural environment and people who want to reshape it and destroy it and all that sort of thing. How, how do you feel like that's going now as someone who lives in Florida and kind of sees it every day? I I think that... One of the things, it, and one of the ideas in the book that I, I really wanted to put forward is that we spend so much time thinking about and harping on and, you know, lighting our, our torches and carrying our pitchforks for poaching when that is not the thing that is doing the most damage to our environment. The things that are doing the most damage 
are like industrial things, people building roads, the um, the Army Corps of Engineers putting dikes around Lake Okeechobee. Um, it's these these big industrial projects that are um, paved paradise and and put up roads and hotels and parking lots. And then we go, oh, this is great. And then we point our fingers at at people who are not doing as much damage as if that can be the Band-Aid solution to the destruction. Um, and the, the big reason for that is they don't have PR teams that are convincing people to think nicely about all of their their hideous concrete structures. We're still fighting all of that. I want to make sure that we're we're not making it sound like everything is a lost cause because Florida's uh, environment has so many people who are advocating for for it. And some of those projects are coming to fruition. They're they're finding success, and one of those projects is the Florida Wildlife Corridor, which is giving space to animals so they can avoid roads, having a, a strip of land that is safe and sacred to them that they can have the wilderness and not be not have to fight people for this wilderness area that they've always called home. Toward the end of the book, you ask Jeff how this experience changed him. And he's very thoughtful about that. And I'll let people who read the book discover that. How do you feel like doing all this changed you? I, I think getting to know Jeff changed me. And the thing that sort of sparked my my eye-opening moment um, with that was, it didn't get into the book, but I've, I've been talking about it, is I was um, in the field reporting with Jeff and he was driving me around in just the absolute middle of nowhere in the upper part of the Everglades and um, showing me places where the story took place. Something I've been joking about in my head, uh, road not digitized Florida and I'll, I'll I'll be with my friend and her GPS will be like, I don't know where we are. We're somewhere. Um, road not digitized Florida. That's where we were. We were in the middle of nowhere. And I, I asked him, I, I think I might have been actually writing something else. And I, I asked him if he knew the name of a plant that I'd been trying to figure out. And I, I pointed it out to him. Um, he's like, oh, that's swordgrass. And then he pointed to another plant next to him and he said, and that's this and that's that. And he just, he labeled the world around us. And I was like, oh my gosh, I never would have anticipated that he had such a vast sort of wondrous knowledge of the natural world. Like I I knew he was a great guy and I knew he had done great things, but I, I hadn't quite grasped the way his brain worked yet. And that was the moment where I was like, this is somebody that I think readers can learn from and I can learn from him too. That sort of reverent appreciation for the natural world is so important to conservation. A lot of people don't know about plant blindness. Um, a, a lot of people have it. Most of us experience it. We we go about our day, our, our natural world, maybe we're just in suburbia and we have oak trees and, and grass and shrubs and things, but most of us don't know the names of any of those plants beyond the oak trees. And that makes conservation really difficult because it's it's hard to raise awareness for and hard to raise money for conservation of plants, especially, or get money to study them for scientists when people don't know what they're called. 
and that is detrimental to the rest of conservation because you know you can't have pandas without bamboo or you can't have crocodiles without mangroves um at least in florida that's one of the the larger takeaways that i've been giving people in addition to what i have in the book is that it benefits your environment to learn what things in it are called a good rule of thumb for the South is that the farther South you go, the more things there are that can kill you. Florida is full of deadly spiders and poisonous snakes and the occasional python someone let loose in the Everglades. But the alligator is the most enduring symbol of danger big and fast and prehistoric, which is what makes it so crazy to think that poachers roam the swamps to kill gators and steal their eggs. The truth is that despite looking so fearsome, gators are more vulnerable than we think. They're a symbol in that way, too, a symbol for the ecosystem that has a hard time holding up to the pressure humans apply to it. A skilled poacher can handle a gator without too much trouble, the same way a skilled developer can destroy another little slice of Florida's wetlands. There's no doubt who does more damage in the long run. But the good news is that so much of Florida and the South as a whole is still wild. And as Rebecca Renner says, if you're near a body of water down this way, chances are you might see a gator. A symbol of one more thing. Something that will not go away so easily. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our editors are Lisa Worf and Jen Lang. Our main theme music comes from Joshua Lee Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the NPR One app, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Subscribe for free to get each new episode sent to you when it's ready. You can also find Southbound at our website. Just go to wfae.org slash podcast slash Southbound. See you all next time. Thanks for listening.